listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome. Well, it's here. We knew it was coming, and I'm not talking about the snow. I'm talking about COVID-19, the very real possibility of community transfer, of community infection. Uh, You've heard that in the news, we have more cases, and perhaps the most concerning one is a travel case from Las Vegas, a man traveling back to Toronto from Las Vegas, and then going on public transit, and even though the Official word is, of course, the, the, it remains low, any kind of chance of infection. Now we have in British Columbia the first apparent case of community transmission. That was announced last night. Officials have eight new cases in B.C. They say a woman in Vancouver was diagnosed with COVID-19, even though she didn't travel recently, had no known contact with anyone else diagnosed with the virus. And we know that even here in Toronto, they're pretty much saying that is only a matter of time until that happens. Dr. Eileen DeVilla says Toronto now has 11 positive cases of COVID-19. All are in self-isolation. And this man that went on the TTC between March 2nd and 4th had come back from Vegas. And just to connect the dots for you, Vegas just recently said that they had a transmission case from Washington State. So someone had gone from Washington State to Las Vegas, and now we have from Vegas to Toronto, and then on the subway system, and the very real possibility here that community transmission is about to get underway. Now, that is not a reason to panic. Let's, let's hear some sensible words from our mayor, shall we? John Tory? Calm must prevail. Calm must prevail. The fact of the matter is, it appears that despite our best efforts here and all of the things that we learned from SARS, it's our American neighbors that appear to have let us down. This reporting in The Atlantic this morning that only about 1,895 Americans have actually been tested for coronavirus. The Atlantic reporting that this morning. 1,895 Americans. That's pretty much as many as have been tested here in Ontario alone and British Columbia. We have done that many tests ourselves. And just keep in mind what the population difference is between the United States and Canada. It is clear that community transfer is underway in the Pacific Northwest and has moved to British Columbia. We know that. And now, the old joke about what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas no longer applies. Donald Trump this morning, talking about coronavirus, COVID-19, says, quote, be calm, it will go away. That, as the president signed a $8.3 billion coronavirus funding bill at the White House. Reggie Cicchini is with me. He is a reporter for Global News in Washington. Hi, Reggie. How are you feeling? Uh, good afternoon. I'm feeling fine. You notice that now, I, I just, every time I ask that, I ask it with a slightly different, like I normally would just say, how are you? But now we all say, how are you? Without shaking hands as well. It's loaded with meaning. So Trump is now going to the CDC after saying yesterday he wasn't. What's going on with that? 
Well, look, he, he bailed out earlier today. They took it off of his uh, his schedule before he was uh, set to depart for Tennessee and then ultimately Mar-a-Lago later on this afternoon. The president saying he didn't want to get in the way of what was happening inside the CDC. There's critics that are saying that's simply just not the case. The president uh, has, over the last number of days, been getting ahead of himself in speaking and potentially was trying to avoid any kind of negative view at the CDC. But within the last couple of hours, they rejigged the plan. He is now going to do make uh, a stop in Atlanta to go to the CDC. Uh, you know, we'll have to wait to see what the president actually has to say about the work that's uh, underway and being efforted at the Centers for Disease Control. But, you know, after he signed that bill, the president had a change of heart and will actually go check to see what's being done uh, to get the, the these uh, this testing further spread across the U.S. I'm, I'm reading reports that there was hesitancy to take the president there because someone might be positive. Somebody may have tested positive at the CDC for coronavirus. Well, I mean, it is possible. Uh, you know, the president is is a self-described germaphobe, and he doesn't like to be anywhere uh, in in a situation that could potentially pose a health risk to him. We've all known that for several years. And if somebody is testing positive for uh, for COVID-19, uh, you know, in a place that the president's going to go, uh, it would pose problems and it would give a um, an optics issue as well. Because remember, just last week, the president was asked right before he held a massive rally in North Carolina, is it safe for you to have all these thousands of people gathered in one room? And the president said, oh, sure, absolutely, it's safe. I don't think there's a risk. That number, 1,895 Americans only that have been tested for coronavirus. That seems shocking. It is shocking, and it's a far cry from what the government had actually promised. Uh, you know, four days ago, Mike Pence, during one of the coronavirus task force meetings, had promised the American people that upwards of between 1 and 1.5 million test kits would be available, quote, by the end of the week. We then had Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar out yesterday saying that by the end of the week, they were hoping 75,000 people would be able to be tested with the number of kits that they're being sent out. And we're less than 12 hours now from the end of this work week, and we don't know if any of those test kits are going to be out there. So the fact that 1,800 have been done, the fact that labs are kind of doing homebrew situations right now, trying to create their own testing to get this done, goes to show that there is a serious lack of preparedness at the government level when it comes to dealing with this virus. How have things changed in Washington itself? Well, I mean, look, there is a uh, more concerted effort to ensure that people are practicing better hygiene. I mean, look, there's there's uh, signs going around uh, on uh, office doors inside the Capitol that show a picture of Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump sitting next to each other and Trudeau not shaking the president's hand by saying, look, this is how things need to go. But there's also outside of the kind of, you know, jovial attitude that people are trying to take because of how the president is dealing with this. Uh, there's also criticism that's coming at Republicans and the president from Democrats and from within his own party by saying that things are not being dealt with properly. The president dug himself into a hole on day one by saying that he was in charge of this, that everything was going to be fine, that there would be very few cases. Here, cases are now spiraling out of control, and Democrats and the, a growing member uh, number of the population in the U.S. are feeling unease with how the situation's being handled. This is the difficulty of personalizing himself in this fight. If things start to go badly... You know, already we've seen him blame the fake news media for spreading disinformation. So, I mean, I, I just, I, I think the the downward slide, the 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 prospects for Donald Trump are pretty poor right now. 
Well, they are, and it's because he has made a political issue out of what is a growing health crisis across the United States. But remember as well, the president put his number two in Washington in charge of this massive battle, Mike Pence. Therefore, if anything happens down the line, it gives the president a fallout boy who's able to take the heat from this. You know, there are rumors that potentially Pence wasn't going to be on the ticket later on this summer for the, for the uh, election. Maybe this is the president's way of being able to weed Mike Pence out uh, and, you know, try to put a bit of a change on things. There are lots of questions as to what's going on right now, but the president, by turning this into a political matter, has underscored the serious health crisis that's actually playing out from coast to coast. Reggie Cicchini with uh, Global News in Washington, D.C. Reggie, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. So really in the United States, the fact of the matter is, is they simply don't know how many cases they have. And it is clearly spreading in the community. Right now, they're talking in Seattle about Comic-Con. It's coming up shortly. And the organizers say it's going to go ahead. It's going to happen anyway. Estimates of tens of thousands of people going. Lots of people saying, well, maybe I shouldn't go. Although, at the, you know, you could, if you dress up in a, you know, in a Batman outfit, I guess maybe you'd be protected a little bit more. I don't know. All that pleather. And we're seeing here in Toronto more and more impacts. I mean, did you hear in the news that no more roll up the rim? No, they're going to they're gonna delay that. And you can't take your reusable cup into Second Cup or Starbucks or Tim Hortons. So, I mean, I, where's it going to end? We need to remain calm. John Tory. Can we get John Tory back again? What is the most important thing, Mr. Mayor? Calm must prevail. Calm must prevail. We're all in this together. Thank you, Dr. Gabrezes. Tedros Gabrezes, the head of the World Health Organization, always just keeping us on, you know, keeping us focused on the narrow path ahead. This is not a time for fear. I am not. I'm, I, I don't feel fear. I just, I'm every morning, do you do this now? Do you wake up and you just, the first thing you do is you swallow and you think, is that a tickle in the back of my throat? Do I feel weird? Is it possible that I'm, no, everything is fine. Everything is just fine. Thanks for spending some time with me. A quick update on COVID-19. You heard about the man who has returned to Toronto from Las Vegas testing positive and having been on the TTC. We have details on our website about when that person traveled on the TTC. And now Peel Region is reporting that a couple who had been on a cruise in San Francisco has been diagnosed after returning home to Mississauga. And Peel Public Health is asking passengers in rows 18 to 22 on WestJet Flight 1199 on February 28th to self-isolate. You get a sense how this is spreading pretty quickly. and The numbers are changing daily and likely will continue. Let's get you an update on what happened with that Amber Alert. Uh, You may know that uh, late last night, the young boy who had been abducted on Wednesday morning was found. And this morning, our police chief held a news conference. I suppose the idea here was to update the public and talk to the public about what happened. But Mark Saunders seems to not 
like questions at all, and he doesn't seem to like questions asked a number of different times. That's what happens at press conferences. Reporters will ask a question one way, and if they say, well, they don't answer it, well, you ask it a different way. That is just part of the job. Here is Mark Saunders, the police chief, responding to a question about the condition that this 14-year-old boy is in. This is a young man. I'm not going to get into the minutia of what state that he was in, and I'd hope that there'd be some dignity uh, with respect to that, uh, to disclose uh, what we did and how we got there right now with an ongoing investigation. I'm not going to jeopardize that particular investigation. I have said this before. You know, I, I've, I've known Mark Saunders a long time. I've covered him when I was a crime reporter, when he was in homicide. He's a good guy. You know, he is. And he, man, he cares. He does, and he works hard. But the thing that I keep coming back to with Mark Saunders is part of the job of being the chief of police of the city of Toronto is communicating. That's really, you have two jobs. You, you know, you marshal your your resources, you make sure you have your resources in place, you manage that, and then you communicate. And when it comes to communication, the chief leaves a lot to be desired. To talk more about the case and about this press conference this morning, I am joined by the current crime specialist for Global News, Catherine McDonald. Hi, Catherine. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Uh, Was uh, the chief prickly from the get-go in this thing, or is it just later in the press conference that he got upset? You know, this was one of his best news conferences, as far as I uh, can tell you. I mean, he actually used my first name for a change, and... uh, he tried really hard to put some facts out. He did say that this young man was disheveled when uh, they found him in this uh, rural property in Brampton. Uh, he wouldn't tell us how they uh, were called there. He just said it was 10 o'clock last night, and he wouldn't tell us. I tried to ask, you know, re-ask and ask, as you, as you said. I asked, can you just give us a little idea, like, was he being held hostage? Was he tied up? And he, he, of course, would not answer. Uh, I mean, really, they're trying to focus now on finding the abductors. And, um, you know, to me, this seems, I, I, I don't, you know, he did say turn yourselves in. As we know, the, the alleged motive for this uh, abduction was retribution for the fact that the stepbrother of the 14-year-old boy um, is involved in a $4 million drug ripoff. So, uh, you know, people involved with organized crime who are who have been maybe hired to do an abduction to try and get money back that they're owed, it seems unlikely to me they're going to turn themselves in. Um, and so then his, I said to him, "What? What? Tell me again. Why? Why are we here today?" And he says, "We're appealing for help uh, and anyone who may have seen anything." And you know, I, I have I have to think that this is the only way they're going to solve this is through uh, really investigation inside. You know, doing surveillance. They obviously wasn't there some video? Didn't we have some video? Was there talk of video surveillance? So the only surveillance that I, I'm aware of is the video of that Jeep Wrangler that they have from uh, the morning of the abduction, Wednesday around eight twenty-five. We did learn today that. Um, they did have not one but two witnesses that called or, or that they spoke to. One witness called and said he reported hearing, help me, help me, and he mentioned something about a Jeep Wrangler. The other witness uh, then sort of corroborated the story for the police and said he saw someone being shoved into a vehicle. So at, police now have told us there are two people involved. The other thing they clarified is that they have not spoken with the abductors, which is something we thought was said yesterday. But in fact, he said that if that, that's misinformation. They have had some contact uh, 
with the stepbrother, who they say is not in any trouble. You know, it's uh, it's not like police have gotten a call from whoever he ripped off saying we got ripped off, and like they're not they, they're not going to charge him with drug theft unless that person calls them. They said so. He's a witness. They don't even know where he is. They've had limited contact with him, but they really want. They'd like to hear from him more. And they also said that um, the missing boy, who's now safe and sound with his parents, they've yet to interview him. Obviously, he's going to be able to hopefully tell them uh, about what happened and who he was with. But, you know, do, my question is, um, okay, so we know that the, the, the burnt-out vehicle in Caledon actually was found Wednesday at 10 p.m. Someone called in and told, Toronto, or told the police, we've, there's a car fire. So that was Wednesday, 10 o'clock. It was almost 24 hours later when this young man was found in this farmhouse in Brampton, 20 kilometers south. The question is, had he been there the whole time? Were, you know, or was he, when they set the car on fire, which we now know to believe the, that vehicle of interest, that Jeep Wrangler, was he taken with them into another vehicle? The problem is they don't have any video surveillance at the forks of the credit conservation area, from what, I'm, from what I've been told. So, you know, this was a rural, remote area. It's not like there are neighbors with, you know, doorbell cams. So they're looking for dash cam viz. They're looking for anyone who may have seen this vehicle. Apparently, Saunders also told us they, they've been, they had pulled over a number of black Jeep Wranglers over the last you know 36 hours so they were they were then he sort of apologized he said we put people and she wranglers through quite a time because we were pulling them over so um yeah this this is a complex investigation now he says it's still very active and uh of course he's uh, we asked what about the boy involved how you know should he be worried about his safety and chief saunders said um you know anyone who goes near him would be crazy like he's already yeah, i heard i heard that clip Mm-hmm. I heard that, and hey, I want to play this one. Can you explain this one for me? This is you asking uh, the chief a question, and listen to the response from the chief. <laughs> There's so much I could say with that comment. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, as I'm, I'm, I'm very confident, it's going to take time. Things don't happen overnight, like TV. But what what does that mean? I mean, yeah, I mean I he's prickly. Here. I, I, I think that Chief Saunders feels pressure. I mean, look, yesterday was a great day for the Toronto police. I said this on Global News at noon. They found this young man, and he's safe. But now uh, he feels pressure. And, you know, I don't think they're going to be able to solve this quickly. Um, but I, I feel I, I feel that he, he may be under a lot of pressure. I think he feels public pressure. Uh, and... You know, being a public speaker is not easy at the best of times, as we know. Amen. Uh, and so, yeah, I think I, I I feel for him a bit. However, we've seen other police chiefs who are who are better communicators. Uh, you know, I don't want to be too critical as, as the crime reporter. I don't want him to stop talking to me. So, um, and he may be listening. So, at the end of the day, I think he's doing the best job he can. But I think he's under a lot of pressure. Where does this case go from here, Catherine? Yeah, so that I sort of asked them that because I, at the end of the day, I wondered, you know, in in this kind of organized crime, when when a kidnapping is, is has happened, uh, I, I wanted to know what's next, and he kind of looked at me like that's what this news conference was about. He appealed a number of times for witnesses uh, to come forward for the abductors to turn themselves in. He, he talked about how he hopes the stepbrother will be more forthcoming. They'd like to hear from him. They've had limited contact with him. Um, yeah, I mean, this 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 case is. To me, what's really striking is it's we often do these um, gun and drug takedowns where they they they, they disassemble 
um, an organized crime group, and they do a show-and-tell with guns and drugs. And I always think, how does this affect you and me? Well, here's what happened. And the chief said it. He said the stepbrother was probably the target of this kidnapping, and they couldn't find him. So in this case, they decided to grab his younger brother, and that's why he was abducted. So this this is how it affects us. This this fourteen year old boy was a, is a grade nine student at a school. Um, obviously, uh, there's now an investigation into the fact that he was not reported missing for many hours, which could have you know delayed this investigation. Obviously, and and luckily it didn't affect the outcome, but it, it could have. So the question now is, you know, from a public point of view, is now you know as tr- Toronto has a serious problem with organized crime involving cocaine trafficking. Uh, this is a real problem. We are, uh, there, there's a lot of drugs in Toronto. There are a lot of organized criminals and kidnappings and abductions happen quite frequently, but usually it involves adults. And in this case, they couldn't find the stepbrother and they, uh, they took the kid. And so that's what's shocking to me and sh- it should be shocking to the community that there are a lot of people in this city who are involved with organized crime and they are violent and if they don't get what they want, they, they will stop at nothing. I mean, I'd like to know which cartel is behind uh, this this uh, drug trafficking. It's it's likely a, a Mexican cartel. I mean, when you look at the burning of the vehicle, that is the telltale of organized crime. Catherine McDonald is our crime specialist working on this developing story. Thanks, Catherine. Always appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. Did you notice what was not said in this last segment? Think about it. What didn't you hear? You didn't hear the name of the 14-year-old boy, did you? And there's a reason for that. And I'll explain that to you. In this email, I think this sets it up. This is the email from the head of editorial standards at Global News, Chris Bassett, who wrote to all of us today. Per our usual policy, we will not name the child or show his image going forward. We will also delete past posts identifying him. While the circumstances in this case are unique, we do not believe they meet the threshold of an exception to this policy, which is intended to protect the identity of an underage victim of crime. That 14-year-old whose name and picture was everywhere yesterday is now home, he's safe, and he is an underage victim of crime. And that's why you will not hear his name. Welcome back to the program. As you've heard in the news, we have new COVID-19 cases here in Toronto, including for the first time, someone who had traveled to Las Vegas. And someone who traveled to Las Vegas and then came back to Toronto and got on the TTC. And now there is concern about the possibility of community transfer. And in fact, Joe Cressy, the councillor for uh, the city councillor who uh, has a handy in public health, saying that that is inevitable that it is likely inevitable that we will see community transfer. How widespread it is, that remains to be seen, and obviously it's not, not a time for fear, not a time to panic, but we are moving towards that. We have seen that now in British Columbia, British Columbia officials late last night, confirming that they have the first case of community transfer, and what that means is that they don't know where this person got COVID-19. Basically, everybody else that we have, all, everybody, all the cases in Ontario, we know that, you know, person traveled here or then, you know, there was a spouse or someone close to that person who got it from them and they can trace it back. But now we have in British Columbia this situation already where we just, we don't know where this person got it. That's what's happening in Washington State. It is likely now happening in Las Vegas, and it is quite possible that it is happening here. And 
would it possibly, could it actually impact the choice of the new liberal leader? There's actually a possibility of that, and here I'm going to tell you how that works. Tomorrow, the Ontario Liberal Party is going to choose its new leader in a delegated convention. And right now, Stephen Del Duca, who is the former Minister of Transportation for Vaughan, he lost in the last election, but he's way out in front with committed delegates. In fact, he has more than 50% of the committed delegates, which should mean that he could win on the first ballot. Except there are 500 other delegates that are going that are not committed. These are basically party officials and big wigs and, you know, so on and so forth. And they get to go, and unlike the other delegates who are committed on the first ballot to vote for the person that they've been elected to, you know, sent there to vote for, and, you know, essentially that all those people that are Stephen Del Duca delegates, they have to vote for Del Duca on the first ballot. But there's another 500 people that don't have to do that. Now, remember, you have to actually be in the room to vote tomorrow. So it is possible that we may see fewer people showing up. Are there people who feel sick and are just like, well, I'm not going to go? Are they concerned about it? We just don't know who's going to show up. So it's very likely that Del Del Duca will either win on the first or possibly the second ballot. But this is at play here because the way the system works is that after the first ballot, the number six person, because there's six candidates here, will be forced to drop off. That will be uh, Brenda Hollingsworth, and she doesn't have very many delegates, and I don't, I'm not sure, sure she can you know, move people here or there, and actually maybe she could put Del Duca over the top on the next one. But in the second ballot, delegates are available to go wherever they want. So there is a window here for Michael Cotto, who's in second place. But keep in mind, he's only got about a third of the delegates that Del Duca has. So it really does look like Del Duca is going to win this one tomorrow. But there is still this weird play going on. And COVID-19 could have, could have an impact on all of that. I want to talk about what's happening at the TDSB in relation to that Amber Alert. If you've got kids in the TDSB, do you get those automated calls? I do. And I'll tell you what, they said that there's two calls that go out a day, one at 11 a.m. and then one later in the afternoon between 5 and 6. And what happened in this Amber Alert situation is that the young man, the 14-year-old, who was not in school, it was not recorded, it was not sent out, so the parents did not get any notification on that early morning call at the 11 a.m. time to let them know their kid wasn't there. If they had known that, they probably would have started sounding the alarm bells. Now, it's great that, I mean, it's fantastic everything worked out fine. You know, this boy is home, he's safe. The case is still ongoing. If you heard our last segment, we talked a lot about where we are with the case right now. But right now, the teachers have been sort of Dis, not disciplined, but sent home, and they're going to look into possible disciplinary action because they did not do what they were supposed to do, and there's all kinds of questions about, well, was this part of work to rule? OSSTF, Harvey Bischoff says, absolutely not. It's not part of the labor thing. It's not an issue. I'll tell you one thing for free. There aren't going to be any consequences for those teachers. There just aren't. But going forward, perhaps it'll scare every other school administrator to make sure that those alerts are sent out early in the morning. I, I've never had an early morning 
alert, even though when I know my daughter has been late or not to school. And normally, you know, you get a call in and let them know. But I, I, I know she missed because, and here's why I know this, because I anchor the news between 5.30 and 6. I'm, uh, I'm on television. And the number of times my phone has gone off, thankfully on silent, while I'm on TV, and it's always the school. And the first couple of times it happened, because my daughter just went into grade 9, I was, I was like, oh my God, what's, what is this? Why is the school calling me at 5.30? And then you realize, well, it's a robocall. And it's because she had been late or had missed class earlier in the day. Hopefully, one of the things that happens going out of this is that the TDSB really tightens this up. Because if my daughter's not in school, I don't want to wait till 6 o'clock to find that out. That's not acceptable. The TDSB needs to do better on this. And hopefully we see some accountability. But we're not. And you know it. Welcome back. Here's something I do not recommend. That is checking the markets throughout the course of the day. And I'm just going to do that. Oh, TSX is down 457 points. And the Dow is down 495 points. So the market turmoil continues because of coronavirus. But let's turn our minds to what happened in the city over the past couple of days with the Amber Alert. The 14-year-old boy is now home, safe with his family. Here is Police Chief Mark Saunders talking about the case this morning. We believe that the motive was because of his brother, his older brother's involvement in a drug ripoff, a value of over $4 million. And I'll be very clear that uh, he uh, had absolutely nothing to do with this whole occurrence other than being a 14-year-old boy that was a victim of being abducted. Toronto Police Detective Constable Ron Chisner is with the Gang Prevention Unit and joins me on the line. Hi, Detective Constable. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm good. The details of this case, an abduction over a drug issue, does that surprise you at all? You know what? It does, because this is one of those cases that's not a common one that happens in any major city, let alone in Toronto, and I think that's why it's garnished so much attention. It uh, does involve a 14-year-old boy, and I think what the most shocking part about this is the fact that it is a 14-year-old, uh, and if you subtract the word gang, it's the focus on the actual kid itself that uh, is what makes this something of such interest to everybody. Uh, Catherine McDonald, our crime specialist, was on the program a little earlier and was talking about you know trying to get to the bottom of who might be behind this, and she talked about cartels and organized... This is clearly an organized gang structure here that is responsible for abducting this boy. That certainly is what it seems like. Uh, I wouldn't be able to speak to that. I don't know the intimate details behind it, uh, but the quantity of drugs, I think that's what's going to really look into this in terms of looking into where this actually came from, what the back end is, and that's part of the police investigation. Uh, so what the answer is to that, uh, I wouldn't be able to give you that answer. Sure. When we talk about crime prevention, though, about keeping kids out of this, I mean, how do we make sure that um, these tentacles of these gangs don't reach into these communities any further? Well, that's uh, that's actually a question that we need to discuss in depth as opposed to in width. And what I mean by that is uh, about three and a half years ago, uh, at the direction and, and being championed by Deputy Chief Jim Raymer, uh, we embarked on a strategy to really look at what do we do uh, on top of the enforcement efforts that we have in terms of targeting violent gang members. And how we wanted to grow that was we wanted to look at how can we get a gang member out of a gang. And the last three and a half years, myself and uh, my partners in the Toronto Police Service, we've been really trying to explore that. And what we had found was 
through Public Safety Canada in 2007, a publication listed 36 different risk factors that somebody faces from the age of zero all the way to 18 that if they're not mitigated with what's called protective factors, they have a substantially higher risk of becoming gang involved or becoming a violent gang member. And uh, those things, again, they start at the age of zero, they go all the way to the age of 18, and they cover five different categories in somebody's life. And what those categories are is it starts at home in your family. That's always where the major risk factors occur. Within the family at the age of three is really when they start to show themselves. And we're talking about an uncontrollable child at the age of three that then transitions into the school risk factor categories uh, where they have a low attachment to school for a wide variety of reasons, and they have some school failure or lack of success. And then it translates to their peer group when at the age of nine they start to develop their own friends. Uh, and already with the existing family and school risk factors, it's now compounding into uh, their friend group, their peer group. And then between age of nine and 15, they develop their individual risk factors where the most obvious indicator at the age of 15 is self-admission of gang membership. And what I mean by that is, I mean, is if you have a respectable and trusting relationship with somebody who's at risk of gang involvement or a gang member and you ask them, are you a gang member? If you're in a position of trust, they'll admit it to you. And where we get to this level here, where it becomes a major concern and where the police lies, the experts, is really the community risk factors. It's what happens from 15 plus. And what the highest or the most obvious thing to look out for in the community is really serious community violence, which is where we're at in the city of Toronto. And that's really where the police lies. So when we look at all these risk factors, for us, it's really incorporating other partner agencies, other partner groups, social services, uh, jails, court services, anybody who has had some level of impact with a child from the age of 0 to 18 that can participate in a solution to help mitigate some of these risks. So, De- Detective Constable, would, would you say, would you admit that the gang problem, despite having this sort of recipe of understanding how people become gang members, but would you say that the gang problem in the city is worse? Uh, you know what, that's tough to say because we attach the word gang, and the real problem with the word gang is when we attach a word gang, it makes us versus them. One of the things I talk about in our town halls, which we host, we have two left, is I think we have to change our lens into this and not look at this as a gang problem, but look at this as a human problem. If I were to remove the word gang and we were to go through these risk factors, I'm confident that there would be unending support, whether it's a GoFundMe account or agencies wanting to come in and buy in to support this and fix this problem, because ultimately they are absolutely broken people in first world countries that become violent gang members, which is unacceptable. And when we attach the word gang and we say this is a gang problem, it fosters a mentality and a conversation that it's us versus them. Whether you're low income or high income, gangs exist in every city. And the commonalities have to do really with the risk factors. And income is really not one of the highest risk factors for it. Unfortunately, in the city of Toronto, in communities that are really impacted by social disorganization and being low equity in our neighborhood improvement areas, they have a bit of an overrepresentation of gang violence. But that stems from deeper uh, psychosocial issues as opposed to law enforcement. What can you tell me about gang initiation rituals? Oh, it's different uh, depending on different types of gangs. Uh, We have a wide variety of gangs in Canada, not just in Ontario, and there's no one set way. And again, that's something that we've discussed about before. It's not really the gang initiation that people should be worried about. It should be the gang recruitment tactics. It's how are older gang members identifying kids as young as 8, 9, 10 years old and recruiting them into gangs. And really where that comes into play is they're jumping into a positive role model space. I mean, think about it this way. You're a 16-year-old gang member. You probably got recruited in at a young age, not initiated, but recruited in, probably 8 or 9. And when you've made your way up, and we have 16, 17-year-olds now who are considered OGs or older gang members, 
and they recognize an eight or nine year old that's been loitering in a, a building on their own and that peer group friends, what they're doing is they're seeing kids that remind them of themselves and they're seeing opportunity to recruit them in. What they do is they fill a very needed role of a positive adult role model. So there's the idea, again, that gang members are just terrible, terrible people. What we do know is about 10% of all gang members are responsible for, I would say, almost the entire criminal decision-making of an organization. The other 90% or 200, or the other 90% of gang members are generally in and out of gangs within two to three years on their own, and they're all motivated by personal factors. But that 10% that's really responsible for the recruiting efforts of victimizing other kids, that's the one that we need to focus on. And all they're doing is they're filling this positive space of role model. They're not intimidating these kids to join the gangs. They're befriending them. Uh, you know, for a lot of these kids that are likely to end up in that environment or in this cycle, they're looking for positive influences, not negative ones. They have enough negative ones. They're getting in trouble at home. They're getting in trouble at school. Uh, they're getting exposed to police and law enforcement. They're getting disciplined on a regular basis. So that one moment that a 16-year-old older gang member or 18-year-old older gang member provides a positive interaction with an adult role model, it's a game changer for these people. So one of the tactics we recommend or we really try to advocate for is to say, let's beat them to the recruiting punch. Let's engage positively before somebody else does and manipulates them into this type of lifestyle. We'll leave it there. Detective Constable Ron Chinzer with Gang Prevention Unit the Toronto Police. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks, Alan. I appreciate it. Before we go this week, I want to talk a little Love is Blind. Maybe you're thinking of doing a little bit of Netflixing, a little bit of uh, binge-watching. Have you heard of this program? Do you have this? you want to play this for me? Hit it. No one knows I'm in Mexico. It's, cra- <laughs> it's crazy, and it's tripping me out. I love hearing the waves crash on the beach. That's my, my favorite thing in the whole world. This is some audio from the Netflix series Love is Blind. Why am I talking about this? Well, because it has now moved from just being binge-worthy to being an absolute pop culture moment with references online to, are you a Jessica? And so on and so forth. If you haven't seen it, what it is, is it's basically a Bachelor ripoff when the premise is that people hook up, or rather they, they date each other without actually being able to see each other, and then they get together, they see each other, and see whether or not they want to get married. From The Guardian... Love is Blind is reality TV at its most compelling and its most repellent. An unparalleled push-pull of programming that you can hardly bring yourself to watch through splayed fingers for eight straight hours. From The Atlantic, the series does attempt to make philosophical critiques of contemporary dating habits, casting social media and cell phone usage as villains in the fight for human connection. This is where this is where we're at it. Now, The Atlantic is writing about it. Sheba Siddiqui is with me, my producer. You've seen the program. You binge-watched it. I'm filled with shame. I'm filled with shame. Why? Carter, I take pride in watching quality television. Quality TV. Things like Succession. Things like Focus Ontario. (laughs) Focus Ontario. Yes. Uh, Global News. Yes. Game of Thrones, when Uh, that was going on. And I have just, because of social media, I have become addicted to this show. Are you addicted? See, here's the thing. I started watching it this week because I realized, like, I just realized I had to know who these characters were because, you know, there are references to it everywhere. I just have to know. Yes. Uh, I got about, you know, 10 minutes into the thing and a dude started to cry. (laughs) And I thought, I'm out, man. I'm out. Emotions (laughs) make me uncomfortable. I don't like it. 
It's just the bad. Why are I don't under, I understand why people want to watch it. I, I guess, but it's painful. Oh, it's wonderful, and I disagree what? with you. It's nothing like The Bachelor. I can't watch an episode of The Bachelor. It's the same no. thing. No, this is a whole other level. And is love blind? Is love blind? That's what you start wondering when you see them in these pods and they're falling in love with each other's personalities and you think it's so beautiful. All of these people are repellent. Every single one of them. There's <laughs> not a redeeming quality in No, them. the best part is when they all go to Mexico and it becomes like Temptation Island and they all start eyeing what they could have had and what they should have had. As opposed to, it's wonderful. It's like Tinder Lord of the Flies. <laughs> is what that is. I... My wife started, and I we watched it together. So, and like I said, I you know, like after this dude starts crying ten minutes in, I get up and I start doing the dishes. That's how much I dislike <laughs> this thing. And then I realize as I'm going to bed, she is now binge watching it on her phone in bed. She's like, I got one more episode. I'm like, what? I don't understand. And she feels deep shame. I think <laughs> so. Do I? Why do you? Why? So why are you drawn in by? It? I I don't I don't. <laughs> I don't know what it is. What is it? It's a train wreck. And you're watching this train wreck that starts off so beautifully. It's very high budget. Everybody's beautiful, first of all. I mean, Which I did. I disagree with that right there. <laughs> I, I, I hate. I hate all of them. We're all in this <laughs> together. Dr. Tedros, uh, you, you think Dr. Tedros <laughs> Gabrezas is binge watching a little Love Is Blind? You know, like, oh man, I got to take my mind off this COVID nineteen thing. <laughs> I think that's what it is. I think that's what it has to do with your wife and I watching this. It's been a rough year. Uh huh. So you can just turn your brain off every night in bed. I'm there for three hours a night. My husband's going crazy. Sod's, he just puts on, he just rolls over. Okay, what Sod think of the thing? Oh, he thinks it's garbage. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. But that's fine. He can judge away. I'm turning my brain off and I'm watching trash TV and that's fine. Can we just, I, we played a little bit of it at the beginning, this Jessica. Now, Jessica is a character on the program uh, and she has become the target of a lot of hate. People don't like her very much. You know, she's an archetype almost, really. And she does this thing when she's flirting where she does <laughs> baby talk, like a high talk. You do that, Sheba? Absolutely not. Uh, is this a thing? Are grown men attracted to this baby <laughs> voice? That's my, my this is, thing this is, this is Jessica here. She's no. Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> yes, God, yeah. Is that what goes on at your house? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, Friday nights? Yeah, that, I'm the one doing the up talk. <laughs> I'm doing the baby talk. But I don't, I, I, the thing is, is I know people who do this. And I, this is the thing is, I think this is why the program succeeds, is it does have these archetypes. It has these characters that you can identify with. Like, yeah, I know a woman who does this. This up talk, the, the baby talk. I don't. You don't? You no. don't know anybody like that? I don't know anyone who speaks baby, but maybe it's because I'm female. Maybe they only do it to men. Well, they only do it to Maybe that, that's it. It's, I, it, it's, it's a weird thing. It is a train wreck of a, of a television show. And here's the thing. If you want to be up to date on popular culture, you have to watch it. Or, or you'd be like Sheba's husband, Saad, or you be like me, and you just get your spouse to watch it and tell you about it. <laughs> It's all we talk about, actually. Well, no, listens. it's all you talk it's about. It's all I talk about. And he, he just goes, uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Time to take out the garbage. Uh huh. <laughs> That's where we're at. Yes. <laughs> the, 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 you know, we're all hoarding toilet paper and we're binge watching uh, Love is Blind. That is. 
That's where we're at. That's 2020 in a nutshell. All right. Thanks, Sheba. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for all your hard work all week long having to deal with a clown like me. And I appreciate to all of you for listening. 